Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. Welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, let's get the business out of the way first. Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast, but... If you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots In. want to thank Andy Sutton once again for coming on last week. Got a lot of great feedback on the first season of the Minnesota Wild and also got some great feedback on the little quick review we did of the 1999 trade deadline. Uh, people enjoyed hearing some old names from the past, especially about the Chris Chelios trade. I think a lot of people have forgotten about that. As we approach trade deadline time now, though, I'm kind of curious to see, especially with the Ottawa Senators, seems to be a lot of buzz around if they're going to be sellers or what they're going to end up doing. But this week on the podcast, I want to talk a little Detroit Red Wings as John O'Grodnick joins us. John was an awesome guest. I wasn't that familiar with John. John kind of played a little bit before when I really started following hockey closely. For his interview, we cover his 84-85 season where he scored 50-plus goals with the Detroit Red Wings. And before we really dig into this, though, I think it's important to give some background on kind of where the Detroit Red Wings were. The team had just been sold to the Illich family from Jimmy Norris, and the team had been really, really bad for a long time. John was actually one of the few bright spots and one of the few draft picks that actually worked out for the Red Wings. And I think a lot of this had to do with kind of Jimmy Norris and the way he ran the organization. I think they had some very good people working for the organization. But as it's been documented, Jimmy Norris wasn't necessarily the best owner. He kind of had his attention elsewhere. I know he had some gambling debts, some other business ventures that weren't going well. So I think he kind of ignored the Detroit Red Wings. I mean, at one point in the 70s and early 80s, I think they had almost gone 20 years without having back-to-back playoff appearances. So as you can imagine, they were pretty much at the bottom of the cellar. And I was nervous about asking John to do an interview about this season because nobody really wants to talk about or remember playing for a team that wasn't necessarily the best. They want to talk about the golden years and when they played for their best teams. But this was a hell of a year for John. He ended up like finishing fourth in points in the league. He had 55 goals, 50 assists for a total of 105 points. The Red Wings were going through this transition, so I thought it would be an interesting interview, and I explained that to John, and John was so cool, he didn't care. He was like, dude, I'll definitely talk about that. Not a problem. And so while we cover that season, we also do get quite a bit off topic. So this is more of a conversation. And if you're a Red Wings fan, you'll really, really enjoy this interview. Because in addition to talking about the 84-85 season, we talk about him kind of coming up through the ranks, the differences between the Norris family and the Ilch family, some nice things the Ilch family did, playing with Adam Oates. We do also get back on topic and talk about the 84-85 season. But there's, there's a lot in this interview, so I just want to forewarn you. One final thing that he also does that I want to just touch on is he does speculate a little bit during this interview and he even says that. And I actually appreciate him doing that because instead of saying, I don't know, or I'm not sure, he gives in certain situations what he believes happened. For example, the story behind why he was traded to the Quebec Nordiques. He has no way of ever knowing for sure why he was traded, but he lets us in on what he believes happened and what he heard happened. And I'm glad he did that because I don't know, it's just kind of neat to hear that inside story 34 years later. And of course, like I said, 
he's going to have no way of knowing that. But I appreciate him sharing with us what he thinks happened instead of just saying, I don't know. Either way, as I said, wasn't real familiar with John before I did this interview and after became a huge fan of him. Let's go ahead and cut to it. Here's John Ogrodnick on the Detroit Red Wings in the 84-85 season. We're covering for you the 84-85 season, which was a really good one for you. You ended up having a great year goal scoring. But June 4th of 84, Jimmy Devolano is interviewed by the Detroit Free Press and talks about how the Red Wings hadn't had the greatest history with draft picks. And you were one of the few success stories. You were a fourth-round pick. Can you talk about some of those early years with the Detroit Red Wings leading up to the 84-85 season? Drafted in 79 and uh, 1979. And, you know, at the training camp, and uh, Bobby Crown was our coach. And... You know, I was the fourth-round draft pick. Uh, first round, it was Mike Foligno. They, I believe they didn't have a second round. And third round, they had two, Boris Fistrick and Jody Gage. And then I went the fourth round. And, um, you know, it was a little frustrating because my junior coach, I wasn't getting as much ice time towards, you know, my final year of junior. Junior coach, Ernie McLean, I remember, called me into his office and said, John, don't worry about it. You're going to go in the first or second round. And he said, I got, uh, I believe he said, I got nine other 19-year-olds that, you know, I got to get drafted. So, you know, he was, these other guys were getting more, uh, you know, a lot more ice time and stuff like that to try and get them drafted and all that. So, which was fine. But like I said, in the draft game, being bang bong, I went in the fourth round. <laughs> they only went six rounds. But, um, you know, that being said, I worked, I worked very, very hard in, uh, in training camp. First round, your management, uh, you know, management doesn't want to look bad, you know, by, um, you know, not having a good first round draft pick. So the first round, you know, he pretty much makes a team, you know, unless he really flops in training. But um, so I worked really hard. And uh, I just remember, um, I think I was being double shifted during the um, scrimmage in training camp. And I kind of lost my balance when they were ready to face off uh, in the offensive zone. And uh, as I was getting back up, you know, around the coach, um, you know, winked at me. And I knew that was my, uh, well, at the time, that was my opportunity. But I knew later on, you know, that's when Bobby Crom had passed. So at funeral, you know, because of Bobby Crom, I got my shot. And this is why. There was an injury in January. I believe George Lau blew his knee out. And uh, so they called me up and I was with McCord and Felino, And we started playing very, very well. And you start establishing stuff. I think that when I got called up, I had, you know, I had the assist. You know, I don't know what I had, maybe eight goals. I can't remember. But um, for the remaining, you know, part of that season. So I started playing the Joe Louis Arena in, in January of, two th- uh, I'm sorry, 1980. And um, it just kind of went from there. The ch- yeah, I was getting the chances. And then, um, you know, next year, uh, those chances started going in. I believe I had my first 35 goal season. And the confidence was there. And, um, you know, at every level of hockey, it's whether the player can acclimate themselves to the next level. And it's like peeling an onion, you know. You've got great, uh, you know, junior hockey players that just can't acclimate themselves to the next level, you know, whether it's the minors or, or um, you know, the pros, uh, you know, the NHL. But it just kind of went from there. So getting back to Bobby Crom real quick when he had passed, uh, Rich Crom doing the eulogy and um, talked to Rich afterwards, and he said that uh, his dad followed my career. And I, you know, I was like, well, "What's that?" And he said because he felt that he was the one that gave me the opportunity, the opportunity to play in the NHL. 
Oh man. So that kind of solidified or verified, you know, that wink he gave me back in, you know, in that training camp in 1979. So that's how it all started. You know, it's hard work and whatever. And the coach appreciated that and he gave you a chance. And when you get the chance, you know, you got to make the most of it when you get a chance. So it's amazing how just so, those little things you remember, like that wink was just a small yeah. little thing. And that probably stuck with you the rest of your life. Well, it did, you know, and I always thought that it was Bobby Crom, uh, you know, that gave me the shot, you know, after, you know, after talking with Rich Crom, I kind of, you know, verified everything and stuff like that. So, so then anyways, the next season, I mean, we struggled. It was, uh, I was going to say it was definitely a struggle and, you know, that's, that's kind of why I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, I wanted to touch on one of the reasons for the struggle is you were there when the Red Wings were really going through a transition period when Bruce Norris sold the team to Mike Ilch. Under Correct. the ownership of Bruce Norris, what were the Red Wings like? Well, I believe it was a little confusing. You know, you could probably check the records there, but we went through quite a few coaches. And I believe one of the coaches, Wayne Maxner, was fired with about 12 games going in the season or 11 games going in the season. And we already knew well before then that we weren't going to make the playoffs. So it was kind of weird, you know what I'm saying? Why not fire him at the end of the season? But right. then you hear rumors, you know, which, which I can verify, but I think, you know, Wayne uh, Maxter, I believe, I don't know this for sure, you know, took control of the team. In other words, he wanted to be the general manager and coach. And uh, I think the GM at that time, Jimmy Skinner, found out about it. And, uh, you know, I believe that's when he was released and uh, fired or let go Wayne Maxter. And, uh, and again, I can't confirm that. I mean, that's, you know, those are the rumors that came out and stuff like that. But we had kind of a revolving door. And um, when I was there, you know, I was young. I was like 20 and 21 years old. So I didn't know uh, Bruce Norris very well. I mm-hmm. know when Mr. Illich took over the team, he was like a family guy. And for Mr. and Mrs. Illich, um, you know, the Rams were like part of their family. And they definitely took a much, much deeper interest in the organization and the business, you know, to, to make it a better product. Once Mike Ilts takes over, what were some of the changes that you started to see that happened? Well, the first thing that's tough for an owner when they take over a team is, um, like anything, you know, you got to surround yourself with good business people, you know, that you believe they can do the job. And, you know, one of the first things he did was, um, no, you know, was obviously hired Jimmy Devolano as, a, you know, as a general manager. And then from there, you kind of let Jimmy go and do his job and see how everything turns out. So, I mean, that's what he had to do. And he wanted to show people that, he was a great owner and he really wanted to turn this, you know, this organization, you know, into a great product. And, uh, you know, he did a few things. I mean, the year I had 55 goals, um, I had a score to Hatrick in Edmonton, uh, 50th. And then we charted it out to uh, Vancouver. Yep. And, um, we, I don't know, we're checking the hotel two, three in the morning, whatever it was in Vancouver. And the coach, called me over Nick Polano and said, here, there's a telegram here uh, from Mr. Illich. So I opened it up and it wasn't in my contract, but basically he gave me a $50,000 bonus. Oh, wow. Or, you know, I thought, or he said, John, you know, congratulations. Here's a thousand dollars. And, um, and it wasn't in my contract. And then, um, you know, it didn't uh, go too well. I think, um, Wow, you know, <laughs> with the, with the players and all that, you know, because you're kind of losing and all that, so it's kind of an awkward situation. But uh, but still, what you know, a nice gesture! On, yeah, what a great gesture. Well, it was a nice gesture, yeah. So later on, when they signed Adam Oates and Ray Stazak, who uh, you know they were free agents and they signed them, um, you know, they tore up Steve Eisenman's contract and my contract and gave us new deals. And again, back then we weren't making the salaries, not even right. close to what the salaries are now. But uh, you know. They wanted to make sure, you know, that we were taken care of. And, I, you know, my agent never asked that. I didn't ask that. It just happened. And he just gave us new deals. 
man, that's that's awesome that they took care of yeah. you. And who was your agent at the time? Do you recall? Originally, I started out with Norm Kaplan, but he ended up passing away with a heart attack, and then it was Art Kaminsky. Okay. Okay. His firm in New York. Yeah. And okay. um, so, yeah, he was pretty much it throughout the years. Going into that summer, the Red Wings take with the seventh pick. The season before, they had done a great job with their first round pick. They ended up taking Steve Eiserman, who I'm sure we'll talk a lot about. But the next year, with the seventh overall pick, they end up taking Sean Burr, who would go on to have a very strong NHL career. What are your first memories of a young Sean Burr? Yeah, Sean Burr was, unfortunately, he's passed away, unfortunately, but um, at a very young age. But Sean was young. He was 18, and I thought emotionally he was very, he was very young also. You know what I'm trying to say? Because I yep. remember something happened. I can't remember what happened. And uh you know, he was kind of tearing up in the dressing room. I don't know if he was going back to junior or something like that. And uh, so he was—he was, he was, a, he was a young, but you know, both uh, maturity-wise and age-wise. But he turned out to be—you uh, know—he ended up maturing, like you said, into a—you uh, know—into a good hockey player. And you know, he was—he was your checking center ice man. You know what I'm saying? He, he worked hard. He banged people. wasn't really a fighter, but he played. You know, he played hard and did a fantastic job on the checking line as a centerman and stuff like that. And he did, you know, he did a great job out there. And uh, like you said, I mean, he ended up having a pretty good career. As a core member of the team at that time, you know, we talked about Sean Burr, and this team had a lot of other young guys. You're in your fifth or sixth season by the 84-85 season. Are you starting to take young guys under your wing to help develop them? There's not much you can do. And I don't know if we really had a young team. I mean, we had Eisenman, we had a couple of players, but I know back in the early days, they traded, you know, McCourt, Felino, and those guys uh, to Buffalo. We ended up picking, some old, picking up some older players. But they started coming in, and it was just, uh, you know, it was a situation. You know, I mean, you don't really take them out of your wing. I mean, you know, you just make sure they're comfortable when they come to camp. And then, uh, you know, you're on the road, you know, you have your team dinners, you know, when you're in training camp, you know, you have, you know, you just make sure they're not isolated, you know. So everybody kind of can contributes to the team to make sure that everybody feels comfortable and stuff like that, you know, when they're there. So they're not excluded to when a few guys are going to lunch, you know, make sure they have a place or they have, you know, they have other players they're going to be going to lunch with. And, they, you know, you just don't want them to be alone and on their own and stuff like that. So as far as that goes, you know, that's the best you can do. And But it's just got, uh, you know, there's no question about it. I mean, you know, I came from a junior team that won a couple Memorial Cups with the New Westminster Bruins and excited when I first started playing in the NHL. And, and, you know, all of a sudden, and all of a sudden you get your confidence and all that. And, you know, and after all that happens, uh, you know, then it gets this frustrating, um, you know, losing all the time. So, um, I mean, it was a big change, you know, when I went to Quebec, we had a great team there. And uh, there's just a whole different attitude in the dressing room when you're winning, you know, and, um, when I was with the Rangers, you know, I believe we won this, you know, President's Trophy in one year. We had some good teams there. And, you know, it's just a much more pleasant atmosphere. Nobody likes to lose. No. And losing, you know, day in and day out. And, uh, you know, it just got frustrating because I believe we didn't have a lot of depth in the minors. So, you know, if somebody kept on making mistakes, it's not like you could call somebody up and, and replace that individual. You know what I'm saying? Or bench right. for a few games. You know, you had to play with what you had, you know, with what you had and stuff like that. So. But it took a while. It took a while, you know, for that whole attitude to kind of change. You know, because even when I came back in 92, 93, you know, there was still, uh, you know, a different attitude in the dressing room. You know, it, it, it was just different from what I experienced with the Rangers, you know, and in Quebec. I think a lot of it changed when, um, you know, when Scotty Bowman came in town, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, and then they started winning and then, you know, 
I mean, winning. I mean, they're all, they were pretty good under Brian Murray, but uh, you know they didn't play well in the playoffs or anything like that. And Scotty came along, and all of a sudden they you know they end up winning championships. It took them a few years and stuff like that. But winning just changes everything. It oh, really it does. does. Everyone know? likes a winner. And, and, Exactly. The players like winning, you know, and it's um, no animosity. There's no, uh, you know what I'm saying? There's no question, yeah. whatever, you know. It's just, it's just like night and day. Yeah. Yeah. As far as that goes. So, but then you have the early years, like I said, in the year I had 55, you know, it's kind of frustrating because the year before, you know, I had 42 with 16 games ago in the season. Right. And we were in Chicago and I had the puck in the neutral zone. And, um, you know, I made a pass over to one of my teammates and I believe it was Troy Murray hit me. And it wasn't even a hard hit. It didn't even knock me over. You know, my wrist kind of felt funny. And then I went to the bench, and I remember Bobby Mano, our defenseman, was there. He goes, he goes, he might want to go to the dressing room. So I looked down, and basically, you know, a few inches, you know, probably four or five inches above my, you know, where my wrist was, uh, you know, I snapped it. So oh. it was frustrating because I, I should have easily had 50 that year also. And I mean it sincerely. You know, I'd gladly give up the 50 goals to be on a Stanley Cup, you know, championship team. You know what I'm saying? And, oh, yeah. Um, you know, as far as that goes, but it's just, uh, you know, the Red Wings kind of had a losing, you know, it's funny because I was talking with Nick Libet. Nick Libet was basically drafted 10 years before me, and I kind of Googled him. And, you know, one of the TV announcers, I don't know if it was Foster Hewitt or maybe not Foster, but uh, some of the other guys, and they're like, well, you know, Mickey Red, I'm sorry, um, Nick Libet, he's a pretty good left winger but unfortunately he came to a team that's kind of been struggling for a while and you know that was in 69 so i was choked with nick i go nick i said he could use that same scenario when i came here in 79 you know the the team was just in the doldrums for the longest time and um and i like i said well i didn't say it but i'll say it anyways you know the illich family was a big part of turning yeah the detroit red rings around you know what i'm saying to make it a top-notch franchise well, I know the Norris family had a lot of distractions towards the end uh, of their days in the National Hockey League. You know, we talked about rookies and no interview is ever complete. And I'm sure you're asked this constantly when people find out who your line mate was in the early and uh, the mid 80s. What do you remember about Steve Eiserman as a young guy? Well, Steve came in, he was only 18 and obviously turned out to be a superstar and a Hall of Famer. There's no question about it. But at 18, you know, he still had some learning to do. And, you know, Steve and I, for as time went on, the first few years, we weren't really conducive. And the reason is, is Steve was more of a goal-scoring center iceman, uh-huh. and, uh, which I had no problems with. But, you know, you don't put a goal scorer with a goal scorer, you know, right. so to speak. Uh, so we weren't really that conducive. And it was a little frustrating at first because... My center raceman before then was Ivan Boldarev, and, you know, Ivan, you know, he was a smooth skater, and, you know, he'd take the puck up the ice, and I'd come up late, and Ivan would set me up left and right. I mean, he was just a playmaker, and he's a goal scorer's dream, you know, he was a playmaking center raceman, and that's when I ended up, at, I believe, having my first 40-goal year, or maybe when I had 42 and I broke my wrist. Um, I can't remember, but, you know, then they gave me, so obviously they put their best left winger right winger with Steve, you know, because they want him to mature and turn into a hockey player and make sure, you know, things going good. And so then Ron Dugay and myself on a line with Stevie. And, and like I said, I mean, Stevie, uh, even then, you could see at the skill level, and if he continued to mature as a hockey player, he was going to be, uh, you know, a stud in the league. There's no question about it. Um, but just the chemistry wasn't there. You know, Stevie's a fantastic hockey player, and he was a fantastic hockey player. You know, and he's a Hall of Famer. There's no question about it. But 
you know, and I said it earlier, and you you concurred. You know, you don't put a goal scorer with a goal scorer. Right. If it's not there, um, it's not there. It's two styles that are too similar. You can't. It's like having a defenseman that goes up. You can't have two defensemen that rush the play. Who's going to cover back? Yeah, exactly. So it turned out to work out a little better because they ended up moving Gerard Glant up uh, with uh, Stevie, and then I would go back with you know Adam Oates, and um, you know with Adam Oates he, back there, he's one of the greatest all-time playmakers and i hear it's because he thinks differently what were your experiences and i know this was kind of outside the 84 85 season but i have to ask as a goal scorer does adam Oates, the way he see the game how does it impact you as a goal scorer what you have is and this is what different hockey players to the next level is Mm -hmm. how well they see the ice Mm -hmm. and move the puck you know, my stick was shaped like a seven iron, so I was not a stick handler. My mm-hmm. whole game was speed, see the ice, move it, move it quick, get it back, you know, and a quick release. And with Adam, we both saw the ice very well, and I knew if I worked hard with my quickness to get in a hole, Adam sees the ice very well, and you just know he's going to get you the puck. You know, um, you know and he just sees. And, and, that's, and, that, and that was... He enjoyed doing that. It was just, you know, he just set me up. He just, that was his game, and he enjoyed doing that. You know, and then he made that, that trade to St. Louis, and um, which was a fantastic trade for Brett Hall. And, right, you know, right. And, yeah, Brett Hall was just like, I mean, and that's all Adam did. He just, you know, he had the puck. He was out there, you know, had a deceiving speed, you know. He actually was a very good skater, but he had a, you know, he didn't have the quick feet or anything like that. He just had a very powerful stride and a very good skater. And he just saw the ice. And that just differentiates, you know, differentiates people. And when you get the puck, you should already know what you're going to be doing with it. Mm-hmm. And that, like I said, that just separates the different levels of hockey. You know what I'm saying? As a yeah. player. And it's like Datsuk or Gretzky or these guys. You know what? These guys just had eyes in the back of their head. And they just saw the play and saw everything. You know what I'm saying? And you have to be ready. You have to be ready because they might not be looking at you, okay? But you have to be ready that, you you know, you could get the puck because they know you're there. Adam was like that. And um, so that little, you know, and the thing is, is that, you know, we had just um, acquired Peter Klima. He defected from the yep. Czech. Couldn't speak very good English. And, you know, then it got a little frustrating because when Peter came here, you know, he basically said that he wasn't going to play unless he played with Adam Oates. So now all of a sudden... He got blunt with Eisman, uh, Peter with Adam Oates, and then where do I go? So I, you know, was basically playing with Sean Burr there for a while in the checking line. I'm like, you know, this isn't. It's not your game. Yeah. And so what happened was, I believe the Red Wings were going to do something. Uh, well, they had a play, uh, they had a deal done with the Nordiques. Okay. Yeah, six player deal. And again, again, I cannot confirm this. If this was the case. I heard rumors that Klima was part of this six-player deal, three from our team and three from Quebec. And I would move up with Adam Oates. And then the main player from Quebec was Brent Ashton, who was a good checker that could get you 20, 25 goals or whatever. And he would play with Sean Burr. And uh, we would have had some, you know, three very solid lines. You know, we would have had some very good, you know, it's pretty good. Lots of depth. Yeah, some depth. Yeah, so, and I don't know, and again, I can't confirm that. You know, I you know I hear that. And so that morning we're playing the Nordiques, or that night we're playing the Nordiques, and we had our morning skate at Jolo Serena, and I'm standing outside the um, dressing room, 
talking, uh, you know, with the scout who was a former player, Donnie Murdoch, who finished mm-hmm. his last year, I believe, in Detroit. So he's going for the Rangers. So we're talking and this and that. And he says, you know, Phil Esposito wants to get you to New York with, you know, Jimmy D, Jimmy DeVolano says, you're, you know, I'm untouchable, this, that, or whatever. And we're just kind of talking. Well, out of our dressing room comes Jacques Demers, our coach, and Michelle Bergeron, the coach of the Nordique. So they walk out and Bergeron just kind of stares at me as he's walking by for about six seven seconds i mean he's just staring at me with his eyebrow i go doc i said what's he staring at yeah how awkward is that he's like i don't know whatever so we're still bsing and talking whatever and then all of a sudden it came out of the uh, visitor's dressing room walked by and he starts staring at me again and i'm like holy cow (laughs) so and again i can't confirm this you know what i through the grapevine what i had heard was that morning, Bergeron changed the deal and said, listen, I want two 50-goal scorers. I want O'Grodnick instead of Klima. And I changed dressroom that, that night after the game. <laughs> I was going to say, you probably walked right over. God. I walked right over. I was able to come back. And I took another flight over to, um, I, you know, the next game was in Chicago. So they let me, you know, get some stuff. And uh, I didn't go to Chicago that night with the team. And uh Took a commercial flight, well, obviously a commercial flight the next day in right. Chicago, and um, it was an adjustment, but it was, it was pretty interesting because I believe, and don't hold me again, I believe, I could be wrong here, but I believe I ended up scoring a couple goals and, uh, in Chicago, and you know, then we charted back to go back. And um, I actually wanted to do it's, it's, another episode with you on that Detroit-Quebec uh, trade, and so I believe you, so I did some research on it just because I was going through everything. And I think you did score a couple goals that first night. Circling back to the 84-85, because I don't want to keep you on the phone for two hours. In early August of 1984, Jimmy Devolano pulls off a trade with the Vancouver Canucks. And the Red Wings said Rob McClanahan to Vancouver for renowned tough guy Dave Tiger Williams. Did the Detroit Red Wings at that time need a tough guy? Because really, they didn't have one at that point. Was that the reason for bringing in Williams? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, when did Probert come in? Probert was down in the minors, and then Coker, uh, Coaster came in later that season. Well, it stands to reason that maybe he thought we needed toughness, you know, toughness and maybe leadership, you know. Sure, you sure. Because that's what, that's, what, that's what Tiger Williams' role was, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely, absolutely. Moving on to the upcoming season, we talked about your risk. During a press tour, Jimmy Devolano announces that the Red Wings will make the playoffs in the 84-85 season. The prior year, the team did make the playoffs, and I guess this would be the first time in about 20 years that they made back-to-back. So that was kind of the goal. Was it do-or-die time for the Red Wings? Was it one of these periods where we better start winning or our jobs are on the line? No. You know what? Mm-hmm. Because the confidence was good. Okay. okay. You just went out there and did your job. I mean, you know, when you play hockey, you get in the zone and... You have the work ethic, you know, nothing's going to change because you're always, you're always working hard. You always want to do well mm-hmm. and, you know, personally in a team situation, but, you know, you work hard and do your job. So nothing changed, you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. it's not like I was uh, not given 110% the previous years and almost and I say, man, I got to give 110% this year. We're not going to make the playoffs. And Jimmy might be mad. No, no, you know, it, it didn't even phase me. The Red Wings at the time had one of the most unique named lines in hockey history. They had the troll line, which was Dwight Foster and Danny Gare. Um, and I believe there was a third player on there. I can't remember who it was. Well, I think what happened was, I could be wrong here, but I think what they ended up doing was moving Bobby Mano up from defense. And I believe he was on the wing with Dwight Foster and Danny Gare. I believe. Okay. And and where did the name troll line come from? 
you know, it just comes to because these guys are muckers and diggers and, you know what, they do the, um, you know, the unappreciated hard work grinding type work, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, they get dirty in the corners and do the work. You got it. Yes, yes. The Detroit Red Wings opening game that season against the Chicago Blackhawks, and don't worry, we're not going to go game by game, but the activity off the ice is kind of what's gaining so much attention. The Flyers had announced that they had traded Daryl Sittler to the Red Wings for Murray Craven and Joe Patterson, but Daryl Sittler refuses to accept the trade. Do you have any idea why he wouldn't accept the trade? I know he eventually did come, but was there anything you recall about that situation? Well, it's funny because I, I had con- I had conversations with Daryl when he came to Detroit, mm-hmm. you know, and I was just in awe of him, you know, because sure. you know, as a kid growing up in northern western Canada, I was a huge Leaf fan. I wasn't a Montreal fan, but I was a huge Leaf fan. And, um, you know, I remember when he had the 10 points that one game and stuff like that. So um, I know in Philly, he said he was very, very disappointed because when he got traded, because Bobby Clark promised him that he'd be the captain of the team. And then Bobby Clark ended up trading him, you know, so he wasn't pleased about that. And again, I'm speculating. I think he wanted, I think maybe he wanted to be on a team that had the potential of winning a Stanley Cup towards the end of his career. And at that point, the Flyers were one of the top organizations. And it's no secret, if you said, yeah, the Red Wings at that time, you know, yeah. That's what my guess is. And the other thing about Daryl, which is interesting, was um, when he first came over, I'm actually sitting beside him on the bench, and he starts to talk to me. And, you know, like I said, I just looked up to this guy, you know. And he goes, uh, John, and he says, um, you know, I, I just don't understand why the Red Wings would trade for me. And I go, well, why is that, Daryl? And he goes, I'm probably one of the worst skaters in the league, and you guys got such a big ice surface and <laughs> great ice. <laughs> and I remember him telling me that. And I was like... You know, whatever. And I told you there was a lot there. I thought it was so interesting hearing about playing with Adam Oates, about the kind of the backstory about his trade, kind of the frustrating sides of going through an organization that was growing. The one question I really have, and this is not a slight on any of the Detroit Red Wings that were on the team at the time, is John scored 55 goals on a team that really didn't have a lot of depth. I wonder what he could have done with a team, maybe like the Edmonton Oilers or the Pittsburgh Penguins in the early 90s, that did have line after line of solid players. I mean, John was kind of out there on his own as a goal scorer. He had Steve Eiserman, but he was still coming into his own. And as I said, I'm not knocking the Detroit Red Wings players of this era, but they were a team that was going through transition. And John was kind of in that weird spot where he was at the top of his game during the period of transition for this team. But I also really enjoyed hearing about Daryl Sittler and kind of the thought process of why he thinks Daryl Sittler was upset about the trade. I thought that was really good. So anyways, don't forget to check in for more Snapshots in Hockey History as we air part two on Thursday at 8 a.m. Appreciate you stopping by.